You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Before we get started this week, I'd like to do a little bit of housekeeping. Over here at the Pirate History Podcast, we are quickly approaching 250,000 downloads. That is, a quarter of a million times that you guys have pressed play. That number is, well, it's humbling. I never hoped, much less expected, to get this kind of a response, and I'd like to say thank you, sincerely. It also puts a little bit of pressure on me, though. The more of you that listen to the show, the more I feel the responsibility to keep the quality consistent and as high as possible. That means that sometimes it takes me longer to get out an episode than I would like. Recently, I've recorded entire episodes that, upon listening to them, felt canned and kind of routine, so I scrapped them. I didn't want to put out a show that was subpar. So again, thank you for your patience on that. That also opens up the very real possibility that I could start doing this for a living, full-time. That would give me the opportunity to get much more content out to you on a very regular basis, content that I'm happy with. However, to do so, I would have to open up as many revenue streams as possible. Now, I'd like to do this without advertising, and your guys' support has shown me that it's a very real possibility in the near future I could. There are so many of you that have offered your support through donations or Patreon or spreading the word about the show. I thank you guys every week, and I mean it, but I'd like to send out something that's a little bit more tangible. That's also had some complications. We've had some products that I just wasn't happy with and was unwilling to send to you guys as thank you gifts. However, we've recently come up with some designs that I am very happy with, and we're going to be sending those out to you shortly. However, if I was approached by a rum company or a sword manufacturer or somebody who made really cool maps, I would be happy to promote that product if I thought it was something that was high quality and something that you guys would enjoy. On that note, we have recently partnered with Audible. A lot of podcasts have done this, as I imagine many of you have heard before, and really, it's a natural fit. Anybody who enjoys listening to podcasts probably enjoys ingesting their media in an audio format. I know I certainly do. The reason I'm comfortable partnering with Audible is because they are a company that provides high-quality content and great service. I actually signed up for their free trial to support a podcast that I love and wound up signing up for a membership with them. I've had this going for months now, and frankly, I really enjoy it. I like getting a new audiobook every month for less than I could pick up a hard copy book at the bookstore. And they have so much content that I know there's something you guys can enjoy. And in fact, I'm going to start giving you guys recommendations for what I've been listening to, stuff that I think people interested in my show might enjoy at the end of every episode. Now, let me give this a shot. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. To get your free audiobook download and free 30-day trial membership, visit audibletrial.com forward slash piratehistorypodcast or visit the link on our website, piratehistorypodcast.com. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. So once again, thanks for your support, thanks for listening, and thanks for your time. Without further ado... Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. In the year 1572, on the coast of Panama, Francis Drake attacked the Spanish in what was at that point the greatest piratical raid ever conducted. He sacked the tiny, entirely undefended town of Nombre de Dios and 
waited around in the region for months to capture a mule train that was carrying untold riches in Peruvian gold and silver. In fact, they captured so much that his men couldn't hope to carry it all back to England, and they were forced to bury caches of it all around the Spanish main. This attack made two things abundantly clear to the Spanish. War with England was inevitable, and that they needed proper defenses on the Caribbean coast of Panama. It was the most sensible route for the Spanish to haul their treasure from the Pacific to the Caribbean, and the English were well aware of that. They decided on a new location. They chose a site that Christopher Columbus, according to legend, had named Puerto Bello, meaning beautiful port. It had a natural and deep harbor and a very defensible coastline. The first plans for fortifications in Puerto Bello were drafted in the year 1586, which was a mere two years before the invasion of the storied Spanish Armada against England. In the war that followed, Francis Drake would attack the Spanish New World again in 1596, but a cannon shot from the El Moro Castle in the coast of Puerto Rico ripped through his ship and wound up injuring Sir Francis Drake. Just a few weeks later, in the harbor of Portobello, Drake died in the shadow of Fort San Felipe, which was, at the time, under construction. Just a few years later, by 1601, the fort, San Felipe, was complete, as were the bones of the Santiago de Gloria castle. Regardless, in 1601, under the cover of night, a privateer named William Parker sneaked past the defenses and took the town of Portobello. His men plundered the city and captured the treasure house there. It was empty at the time, but once again the Spanish saw a weakness in their fortifications that needed to be mended. Their answer was more guns, more men, and new fortifications. You see, Portobello was the Caribbean center through which all Central and South American treasure, mostly gold and silver, flowed, and they saw the city defended just as one might expect. For nearly 70 years, no major attacks on Portobello had been successful. However, in the summer of 1668, on the Isla Vaca, or Cow Island, off the coast of Hispaniola, a man that the Spanish considered El Draque reborn lay at anchor. Captain Henry Morgan had just proved himself to be a thorn in the side of the Spanish, but at this moment he had very real problems. His raid on Puerto Principe had not gone as planned. They had wasted time and English lives to no real benefit. Their haul had been paltry at best, and the buccaneers were disappointed. The French, who were among that crew, had left the fleet a week prior to join with Francois Lolonnais, and a few Dutchmen and even a select few Englishmen had gone with them. Those that remained were loyal to Morgan, but their confidence and their purses were both light. But Morgan assured them he had a plan. It would be a dangerous gamble, one that would see them dead or in chains if they failed. However, if they succeeded... This voyage would yield them results beyond their wildest dreams. Many of these men had been with Morgan to Campeche and Grenada. They trusted him and trusted that once again he would lead them to riches, which he would. But this raid was to be the most controversial of Morgan's life. It was an action that would haunt him for decades to come. Before the men set sail for their destination, however, the buccaneers needed to make a pit stop back in Port Royal, Jamaica. While the men were at home, they would have bought supplies, they would have made any necessary repairs to the ships, and they would have visited local brothels and rum sinks. They had only a few days to drink themselves stupid and spend their remaining gold on the attentions of their favorite prostitute. Morgan himself would have avoided the dockside revelry, though. He had a wife and important reports to make to Governor Modiford there. You see, Morgan had interrogated every official in Puerto Principe that he could find, and he had a wealth of intelligence to share with the governor. The Spanish were, in fact, planning an attack on Jamaica. Men from Campeche, Portobello, Veracruz, and Cartagena were all massing in Santiago. The windward fleet was very real, and it was being amassed to invade. Now, most historians count Morgan's last raid, the raid on Puerto Principe, as a failure, and in some ways it was, but... From Morgan's perspective, he lost very few men. They dealt a blow to Spain, and the men who remained had more money than when they started, if not as much as they would have liked. And he accomplished his mission, the mission handed down to him by Governor Modiford. You see, that raid on Puerto Principe was, in essence, just a reconnaissance mission to learn as much as possible about Spain's plans for an invasion in Jamaica. In that regard, the mission was a resounding success. However, our most prominent primary source is the Buccaneers of America by Alexander Exquemelin. Exquemelin was there. He was the barber surgeon on board Morgan's vessel. 
and he had a vested financial interest in the voyage, and from his perspective, his last raid had been a failure. By all accounts, Exquimelin really didn't much like Captain Morgan either, especially after they parted ways. It had been a nasty separation. You see, right here we see the biggest issue in telling this story. Exquimelin can tell us better than anybody what exactly happened since he was there, but he wasn't an historian. He was a man, later in life, looking to sell books. He was more than willing to exaggerate or omit the truth or just outright lie, both to make Morgan look bad and to tell a heartier tale of swashbuckling high seas adventure. The book was published, you see, first in Dutch, then later in German and French and Spanish, and then finally in English. When Morgan finally got his hands on a copy and read Exquemelin's account of his life, well, he wound up taking the Dutch doctor to court. He sued him for libel, and he won. Later English versions of the book, you couldn't really call them translations, but they were titled things like The Buccaneers of America, a true account of the most remarkable assaults committed in late years upon the coasts of the West Indies by the Buccaneers of Jamaica and Tortuga, both English and French, wherein are contained more especially the unparalleled exploits of Sir Henry Morgan, our English Jamaican hero who sacked Portobello, burnt Panama, etc. Perhaps I should have given a spoiler warning there, but do you see the tone? Do you see how that seems to talk about Francis Drake? It calls him an English hero. In these later English editions, huge sections of the original text were left out and entire chapters were rewritten. I've got copies of both the pre- and post-lawsuit translations, and the difference is staggering. The best, and by far the most accurate translation, both to the text and to true history, is still Alexis Brown's 1969 translation. That's the one that, if you buy it today, you're most likely to get. But the question still remains what the real truth is. Was Exquimelin's telling of events accurate, or was Morgan's? Perhaps neither. We have centuries of translations, we have accompanying letters to these stories, we have court records and all sorts of modern scholarship to pull from, and so maybe we can just piece together what actually happened on the coast of Panama in the summer of 1668. This is episode 22, The Lies of Portobello. Back in Port Royal, Captain Morgan's first order of business, after his report to the governor, was to replace the French and Dutch buccaneers that had abandoned him. And he was in luck. His old friend Captain Jackman had recently returned from a raid on the Spanish main at Campeche, and his men were ready to sail. He signed on for Morgan's next raid, under the understanding that Port Royal was not the place to discuss exactly where they were going, but that it was going to be a fabulously rich and ripe-for-plunder target. This brought together the three captains, Morgan, John Morris, and Jackman, that had so successfully raided Grenada just a few years past. Now, a number of the men in these crews would have upgraded to the best new muskets available. These were usually at the time going to be French muskets. They would have been about five feet long with custom powder cartridges. They would have been flintlock works of art, quite literally. The barrels, four and a half feet long, would have been etched with beautiful markings, telling exactly who made them. When the fleet finally sailed, they would have sailed south-southwest, with nine vessels towing behind them, each of the ships one or two canoes or rowboats that they would have used in shallower waters. They reached the coast of Costa Rica, and Morgan called all the captains together to hear his plan. Stephen Talty writes in Empire of Blue Water, quote, the privateers sailed to the coast of Costa Rica in July of 1668, and Morgan revealed the target. Portobello. Some of the pirates protested instantly. The Panamanian city, originally known as Porto Bello, was a major stronghold. It boasted two large castles. And a little side note, it actually boasted three large castles here. Back to the text. The mammoth Santiago and San Felipe de Todo Fierro, the Iron Fort, one on each side of the harbor mouth, bristling with 44 guns that would fix any enemy ship in a withering fire. It was also said that the Italian who had laid out the city chose the spot because it stood on a peculiar type of coral that could withstand cannon blasts. Should a pirate ship miraculously make it past the two castles, farther up their river towards the town there were layers of military redundancy. Sentry posts, blockbusters, lookout positions manned by armed soldiers. Near the quay, another huge fort was being built by the unfortunates who had been captured at Providence, slaving away during the day and chained in a prison at night. There were only two cities with stronger defenses in the entire Spanish main, Havana and Cartagena. 
Even the great Sir Francis Drake had died outside Portobello Harbor, unable to penetrate its defenses. End quote. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. This guy can really drive me crazy. He spins a good yarn, to be sure, and this book is a fun read, but I really can't recommend it for historical accuracy. His pages are filled with hyperbole, omissions, and misleading factoids, and a fictitious pirate named Roderick that would fit better aboard the Queen Anne's Revenge in 1718 than under Captain Morgan. He leads us to believe that Francis Drake was defeated and killed at Portobello, even if he doesn't outright say it, which just wasn't the case. He was defeated and injured in the Battle of San Juan, and later, due to his injuries, contracted dysentery and sailed to Portobello, where he intended to recover and wound up dying. He asserts that there are two castles in the bay, which there were three, and he actually does make mention of a castle under construction, which was the case. However, he gets the placement of these castles wrong. Now, normally this wouldn't be such a big deal if he wasn't able to, you know, go look at where they are. The ruins of them are still standing there today. Now, in his book The Pirate King, historian Graham A. Chapman gives us a more accurate, if less swashbuckling, description of the defenses. Quote, Portobello was the third strongest city on the Spanish main after Havana and Cartagena, and no fleet of ships could penetrate its harbor because of the sixty cannon that were in the three castles overlooking the entrance to the rest of the harbor. It would be suicide. End quote. As you can imagine, the men were somewhat hesitant about attacking such a well-defended city with their reduced numbers after their last raid, regardless of the potential spoils. Once again, though, Morgan used his charisma, his oratory skills, and his larger-than-life personality to sway them. To quote Exquimelin, Morgan put spirit into them, saying he knew ways of making them rich if only they would follow him. The high hopes Morgan held out made them agree. And then he goes on, the raid would be easy to accomplish, he argued, as no one was aware of their presence on the Spanish main. Some replied that they were but few for such an undertaking, upon which Morgan said that if they were few in number, each man's portion would be so much the greater. The resolution was agreed, and forth they went. End quote. The sailors began preparing the canoes and rowboats that they had brought with them. They started loading them up with muskets and their freshly sharpened sabers. They loaded them up with rum, hand grenades, and powder cartridges, as much of all of this as they could carry. While they prepared, making sure that their weapons were all oiled and good order, they saw something that they could scarcely believe. A canoe carrying six men rode directly for the ship. The men on board looked bone-thin. They were burned red by the sun. They were wearing rags, and they were covered in the scars of torture and they hailed Morgan's ship in perfect English. These men were, of course, rushed aboard and tended to. It came to light that these were men from the doomed English enterprise on Providence Island a couple of years before. Nearly two years had passed since the Spanish recaptured the island, and all that time these men had been enslaved in Portobello, forced to work 12-hour days and chained in dungeons all night long. They were the men who were building that newest and largest castle in Portobello. The English in Jamaica, and frankly all around the world, had long believed that any man who had been unable to escape the Spanish in Portobello must be long dead. These men were proof otherwise. However, the state of these men, emaciated and haunted eyes, scarred and skeletal, well, this reignited the righteous fury of the buccaneers over the treacherous betrayal and the treatment of their countrymen. 
For men about to enter battle and go kill Spaniards, there was no greater tonic for them. Except perhaps one thing. Of even greater interest to the buccaneers, and to Morgan especially, there were two pieces of news that these prisoners carried. First, they let them know that a general levy of taxes had been raised in the province, and the militia were being rallied to attack Jamaica. This wasn't news to them, but it was a further confirmation that the Spanish were preparing to attack Port Royal. Second, though, there was news of one particularly important prisoner, still chained in the dungeons of Portobello. Prince Maurice. Prince Maurice was the nephew of King Charles. He was a cavalier, a rogue, a dandy, a duelist, a drinker, a gambler, and an adventurer. In short, he was a popular sort of Englishman. Now, he had fought in the English Civil War on the side of the king, but after the Civil War, he traveled to the West Indies, and his ship was lost in a terrible storm at sea in the year 1652, just off the Virgin Islands. Now, since that time, rumors of him had circulated from the highest offices in London to the dirtiest wine sinks in Port Royal and beyond. You see, there were frequent reports that he had been spotted in Scotland, or maybe spotted in France. Maybe he was spotted from his window of a cell at a Moro Castle in Puerto Rico. Sometimes he was living with the Inca in South America. Other times he was a privateer. Even more dastardly, sometimes he was a pirate living in Tortuga. The prince's story had become mythical to the English. Hearing of their prince, the hearts of the English swelled with patriotism. They were filled with a civic duty to go save their prince, to do battle with the Spanish, and to go save the Englishmen who had been held captive by the dastardly Spanish. Except, none of that actually happened. Probably. This entire story of the Englishmen making their way to Captain Morgan's ship was likely fabricated out of whole cloth. It comes from those later editions of the Buccaneers of America, and those editions were pure propaganda that the British used to get their people excited about attacking the Chinese or the Zulu or whoever they were at war with at the time. Imagine hearing today about a group of American soldiers stationed in Germany or Vietnam or Iraq that wound up burning an entire village to the ground because they had heard that Amelia Earhart or Jimmy Hoffa or Elvis or Tupac was being kept prisoner there. You probably wouldn't believe that, and the people who were reading this in 1898 probably didn't believe it either. Now, all Exquimelin tells us in his more accurate translations is that Morgan had a description of the area's defenses from a local native and that he had an Englishman in tow who had formerly been a prisoner at Portobello. Now, that probably wasn't a man who had miraculously escaped that night somehow. It was probably one of the men who had escaped some years earlier and made his way to Jamaica. Now, as much as I love the story of a group of Incan ninjas breaking a group of Englishmen out of their cells just in time to go meet their savior, Captain Morgan, that's just not what happened. On the other side of that coin, though, some historians subscribe to a version of these events that portray Captain Morgan not as a hero, but as really the worst kind of villain. They say that he captured a fishing boat carrying three men. Two of these men were black African slaves, and one of them is what the Spanish of the time called a Zambo, or a man of Amerindian and African descent. The buccaneers, in this version of events, questioned these fishermen, and when they didn't get the answers they wanted, they cut the two African men into pieces and fed them to the sharks. The Zambo man, and... I don't know if that's a slur, I didn't find any evidence of that, but if it's somehow offensive, I don't intend it to be. That's just the word the historians use. But the Zombo man was quick to tell the English everything they wanted to know. Now, again, this was part of what so infuriated Morgan, and one of the reasons that he sued Exquimelin later. Whether he did these things or not is hard to tell, but Morgan insists that they're all lies. In his own words, Captain Morgan's, quote, so leaving their ships on 26 June, 40 leagues to leeward of Portobello at Bogota, they took their canoes, 23 in number, and rowing along the coast landed at 3 o'clock in the morning and made their way into the town. End quote. Now, before getting to Portobello, they would have had to sneak past a number of shore forts, most notably Fort San Lorenzo at the Rio Cagres. The town that he makes reference to might actually be Portobello, but before they made their way in the town proper, they reportedly entered a small village called Estero Longo Lima, where 
the buccaneers began a march overland toward Portobello. It was likely the first settlement capable of sounding any sort of alarm, and the buccaneers wanted to handle it. As they began their march, the first proper outpost of Portobello that the buccaneers encountered had a lone sentry there, and Captain Morgan commanded one of his stealthiest men to go kill him. The man did him one better, though. He actually went ahead and captured that soldier without a single shot being fired. The Spanish soldier was brought before Morgan, who, quote, questioned him as to the arrangements of the town's defenses and the strength of the garrison, and the prisoner told what he knew. Still, with his hands tied, they made him march in the vanguard, threatening that if he had not told them the truth, it would cost him his life. End quote. So the column marched on, and the sky slowly crept towards dawn. The outlines of two huge forts became clearer and clearer on either side of the harbor mouth, guarding it from any unwanted ships entering the harbor at Portobello. Now, the greatest of these forts was the Santiago de la Gloria Castle. Sometimes, and I'll refer to it as this frequently, it was called Fort Triana. Now, that was actually set on the coast in the town of Portobello proper. On the outskirts of town, closest to the buccaneers, was San Geronimo Castle. Now, it would one day be the greatest of the three, but it was as yet incomplete. It was the castle that the Englishmen were currently working on, and presumably where they were being held captive. Now, the smallest, but still a formidable fort, was San Philippe, across the bay. It was a little too far away to offer any immediate threat to Morgan and his men, but it had a potential for being a rallying point of resistance. And besides, while any of these three castles stood, there was no way any of their ships could get into the harbor at Portobello. Now, before the buccaneers actually reached the first major fort, San Geronimo, they encountered an outpost that had five soldiers stationed there. This outpost, called La Rancheria, was a serious problem for Captain Morgan. Not because there were five men there, that wouldn't be any impediment at all, but it would be difficult to capture or kill these men without a shot being fired on either side. You see, if a shot was fired, it was likely to warn anybody in town that there were enemies at the gates. Trying to avoid any shots being fired, Morgan called out to the men inside this guard post. He told them to surrender and said that he would spare their life. If they refused to, though, they would face certain death. Now, this was not an idle threat, and the men inside the guard post knew that quite well. Regardless, in a show of honor and bravery that frankly boggles the modern mind, they fired a volley at the Englishmen. It wounded two of the men, but they had no way of escape, and they knew that. This did, however, warn all of the soldiers in all three castles and all of the men of Portobello that there were enemies outside. This is something that we see throughout the ages, even into modern times, from soldiers of all nations. However, it seems to be a particularly prevalent thing in the Spanish Empire. The Spanish seemed to have a culture that told you that a brave death was always better than any sort of surrender regardless of the circumstances and it's about to play really a major role in the battle to come. I think this attitude is best summarized in a quote from a famous Mexican revolutionary. It was later repeated by Che Guevara, an Argentinian fighting in the Cuban Revolution, and the idea probably goes back into time immemorial, but a man named Emiliano Zapata once said, quote, It is better to die on your feet than to live on your knees. End quote. That's a strong sentiment. And that would have been the attitude of the men of Portobello. Well, it would have been the attitude of some of the men. The soldiers, at least, right? Okay, well, maybe not all of the soldiers, but the commanders. I mean, maybe not all the commanders, but the men in charge, right? I mean, I guess not exactly all the officers, or the governor, or the priests. Okay, so it was basically just the attitude of one man, a man who was the mayor of Portobello, a man named Sanchez. You see, it's important to note that the town of Portobello, while normally fabulously fortified, wasn't even always fully populated. For most of the year, it was nothing more than a sleepy little village that had three giant castles standing above it. It was only when the treasure galleons arrived from Spain and the port at Portobello that the town really came alive. The streets would have been swarmed with sailors and soldiers that filled the barracks. 
Locals who were merchants or farmers or prostitutes or craftsmen from miles around would arrive to welcome them in and sell them whatever goods or services they required. Now around this time, the mule trains would arrive from Panama City, about 70 miles away, carrying all of the treasure to Portobello to be loaded onto the ships there. Now at this time, the treasure houses would have been filled, but to any merchants or soldiers there, it was also the time when the most gold flowed freely between men. Now, this was known to everybody as the most dangerous time for an attack from pirates, and only then, during these days, would the men of Portobello take up arms and man the guard posts. Except for what was really a skeleton crew that manned the forts there, the majority of Portobello's militia were tradesmen for most of the year. And nearly all of these men had never seen combat before and had never fired a musket in battle. Beyond that, most of these men had not seen their wages as militia from the Spanish government in years. They weren't being paid to protect the town. They were protecting the town out of their own self-interest to protect their property. They didn't really care much for the gold of king and country. Now, I should note that at this time, the mule train was not in town. Morgan wasn't attacking when the fortifications were at their strongest. That would be extremely stupid, but there was still a lot of money in the town. A lot of these merchants were still there that had a lot of ready cash, which was what he wanted. Anyway, though, those five guards that had fired at the buccaneers were cut down, and all across Portobello, men and women crawled their way out of bed and rubbed the sleep from their eyes and wondered what all the ruckus was about. Mayor Sanchez, though, did have word of the approaching force, and he gathered every able-bodied man in town to him. He assembled all of these men in Fort Triana, which was the most defensible position in town, but it left the men in the other two forts, as well as anyone left out in town, kind of in the lurch. Now next, Morgan's men would have come upon San Geronimo Castle. Now it's reported that at the time, Captain Morgan began to panic. He saw the route that his Spanish guides had led him on and thought that they had led him into a trap. Their route led them directly into the line of fire of San Geronimo's guns. His men attempted to calm him down, but it wasn't until the cannons fired upon them, and they realized that somebody inside the fort had made a terrible mistake. It's unclear exactly what happened, but instead of loading the scatter shot that would have decimated their ranks, they loaded their cannons with simple cannonballs, which missed the buccaneers completely. It sent up a spray of dirt and sand, but did no injury to anybody attacking the castle, so any fears that Captain Morgan or any of his men had would have been allayed. The buccaneers stormed the fort. Apparently, there really wasn't much of a battle. Stefan Talti writes that, quote, Spain's decay was immediately evident at Geronimo. The soldiers found only a single working cannon that could cover the direction from which Morgan's assault had to come, and there was only damp powder to charge it. End quote. Even though there were more guns in the fort, they were aimed at the harbor. They weren't prepared for an attack by land. There were also few men inside, certainly not enough to move the cannons at speed, so the fort fell quickly. In the cells inside the fort, they found 11 English soldiers, men that were actually from Old Providence, chained to the floor. These men were freed and freely joined the ranks of Morgan and his men. Now, as you might imagine, Prince Maurice, the king's nephew, was nowhere to be seen. To quote Exquimelin again, quote, The redoubt could not hold out long, and as soon as the buccaneers entered, they blew up the inner fortifications with all of the Spaniards inside. End quote. Or from another translation, the buccaneers, quote, instantly set fire to the powder, whereof they found a great quantity, and blew up the whole castle into the air with all the Spanish that were within. End quote. Now, Alexander Pope points out in his book, Harry Morgan's Way, that an expedition just a few years later refutes this claim entirely. A man who was actually there said that the fort was standing strong and there were no signs of any damage. Again, we come across a conflict. Exquimelin paints us a picture of a brutal conqueror murdering these brave Spanish soldiers in cold blood. All the other accounts, though, seem to contradict him, and... In truth, reality kind of contradicts him here, too. There have been archaeological expeditions there that have not found any evidence that there was a massive explosion at the fort. Now, there are, of course, centuries between now and then, so they might be covered up by the eras, but you'd think they would find something to suggest that there was some sort of damage. 
Regardless, with the captives freed, and these men were actually there and were actually freed, the buccaneers could move on. Morgan ordered a battalion to cross the bay and take San Felipe, that fort that was a little too far away but still posed something of a danger. That was the smallest castle, so just a few men should be able to take it. In the meantime, his force, the main force, would enter Portobello proper and take the city. They would prepare from there to besiege Santiago de la Gloria, the greatest castle of the three. Once again, we're shown a much more brutal Captain Morgan, though, than the man who was sacked Puerto de Principe just a few weeks before. Let's look at the following hours through the eyes of Alexander Exquimelin. That main group of buccaneers roamed the streets, quote, firing off their guns at everything alive, whites, blacks, even dogs, in order to spread terror, end quote. The locals in town hid their valuables. They threw them down wells, hid it in attics or in hidden caches throughout the town. The buccaneers rounded up nuns, priests, merchants, basically anybody who was not of sufficient standing or able body to be in the fort at the time. These people were all imprisoned in a warehouse there in town. Now that the populace was safely under guard, the soldiers, the buccaneers, could assault the fort. For an entire morning, the two sides traded fire. The exceptionally well-armed and well-trained buccaneers were getting off seven or eight volleys for each of the Spanish one. This was, of course, killing a number of Spaniards, but the walls to Fort Triana were high and strong, and the buccaneers were unable to take them. They made a push for the gate, attempting to light it on fire, but the Spanish dropped down huge rocks and casks of lit gunpowder, which drove the buccaneers back. The Brethren of the Coast retreated from their forward position and began to fall into despair. Then, from across the bay, the flag of St. George was raised above Fort San Felipe, and the men knew that the English had taken the smaller fort. These soldiers, that smaller force, rode back across the bay, shouting, Victory! And the buccaneers concocted a new plan. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. The men of the town that were still left were forced to build massive ladders, wide enough for three or four men abreast and tall enough to scale the walls of Fort Triana. All of the priests, the nuns, the elderly, and any matrons in the town were brought forward and commanded to carry the ladders toward the castle walls and put them in place there. This was the most dangerous part of their plan, which was circumvented by Captain Morgan deciding to use these vulnerable human shields. He was putting them in harm's way, but Morgan truly believed that the mayor would never fire upon his own people. But Morgan was wrong. Per Exquimelin, Morgan, quote, never thought the governor would fire on his own people, but he spared them as little as he had the raiders, end quote. The cries from all of the most vulnerable in town for Sanchez to spare their lives and surrender the castle went unheeded. The men on the walls opened fire. Regardless, if they turned back, the buccaneers would certainly massacre all of them. So, despite being shot at by their own countrymen, these people got the ladders into place, and the buccaneers were able to attempt scaling the walls. They threw before them hand grenades and stink pots, and as soon as they were at the top of the wall, they opened fire immediately, then topped the wall and began cutting about them with their swords. But the defenders were too well organized and too strong, and they held the wall successfully. Morgan, once again, was forced to retreat. 
Just then, though, another smaller unit succeeded in lighting the gate afire, and the Spanish defenders were forced to divert their attention to defend the gate. Then, both units of buccaneers advanced into the fort, cutting down the Spaniards left and right. Soldiers, Spanish soldiers, began to surrender. But the mayor himself, Sanchez, refused the pleas of his wife and daughter, and of the townsfolk, and of the priests themselves, and then of the pirates to surrender. He said, quote, Better to die as an honorable soldier than be hanged as a coward. End quote. He was soon killed. Upon his death, each of the forts of Portobello was in the hands of the buccaneers. Their ships sailed safely into harbor, and the remaining people were rounded up. And thus begins a month-long reign of terror. That very night, the men of the town were held under lock and key, while the pirates, quote, began making merry, lording it with wine and women, end quote. Or, another translation, they, quote, fell to eating and drinking as usual, that is, committing in both all manner of debauchery and excess, end quote. Wine, food, women, the pirates had their fill and indulged every desire. The accounts in the extremely proper Victorian editions of the Buccaneers of America are bordering on the worst excesses and orgies of the Roman Empire. When the pirates' desires were finally sated, though, they turned to plunder, and then to torture. Quote, Next day, the rovers began collecting the loot, searching all of the houses. Some of the prisoners were made to point out who were the richest among them, and then the citizens were asked where their wealth was. If they refused to tell, they were immediately put to the rack and tortured there until they gave up the ghost or confessed the hiding place. Many innocent souls who, in fact, had nothing to hide, died like martyrs under the torments their captors subjected them to. No one was spared except those who revealed where their goods were hidden. End quote. Again, later translations embellish this. Hot irons, lashing, the rack, wolding, it was all on the table, on a par with the worst atrocities of Francois Lelonnet or the medieval witch trials or the Spanish Inquisition itself. The buccaneers plundered jewels, plate, gold crosses, pieces of eight, anything of value that wasn't nailed down. On Morgan's orders, they began the arduous task of removing all of the bronze guns from the forts and loading them onto their ships. Any that were in too poor of a repair or too heavy to move, they had destroyed, which would leave Portobello defenseless for at least months to come. For a month, Captain Morgan and the Brethren of the Coast occupied Portobello. But the question remains, what exactly actually happened there? Exquamellan's account is clear in its demonization of Henry Morgan. He was a brute. He was a vile barbarian. But Morgan would contest this notion in court, and he would win the case. Now, what we've seen of Morgan in our story so far suggests that he was an English gentleman at heart who didn't have the fortitude to subject people to torture. But had he turned? Had he realized the need of harsh and violent tactics? Had he left the mold of Sir Francis Drake behind, only to become a loathsome pirate like Francois Lolonnais? The future of Henry Morgan would be brutal, to be sure, but would we ever again see this level of torture and apparent glee in this torture? There are two accounts from shortly after the events in Portobello that can give us some insight. First, we have the account of a Jamaican planter in Port Royal, a man who was of some standing that claimed to have heard the pirates bragging of their adventures in bars around town. He writes, quote, It is a common thing amongst the privateers, besides burning with matches and such like torments, to cut a man in pieces. First some flesh, then a hand, an arm, a leg, sometimes tying a cord about his head, and with a stick twisting it till the eyes start out, which is called wolding. Before taking Portobello, thus some were used, because they refused to discover a way into the town which was not, and many in the town, because they would not discover wealth they knew not of. A woman there was by some set bare upon a baking stone and roasted, because she did not confess of money which she had, only in their conceit. Thus he heard some declare boasting, and one that was sick confess with sorrow. Besides the horrid oaths, blasphemies, abuse of scriptures, rapes, whoredoms, and adulteries, and such not forborne in the common highways and not punished, but made a jest of even by authority. End quote. 
This man, if he's telling the truth, seems to have a lot of evidence that the pirates were, in fact, brutally torturing the people of Portobello. However, that account, even when it was sent on to officials back in London, never seemed to gain much traction. Now it might be because upon his return to Port Royal, Captain Morgan was something of a celebrity that was making everybody in town quite a lot of money, or it might just be that his account is not in the least true. Now there is another account detailing the attitudes of some of the women of Portobello. It reads, quote, They further declared to the world that in all this service of Portobello they lost but eighteen men killed and thirty-two wounded, and kept possession of the place thirty-one days, and for the better vindicating themselves against the usual scandals of that enemy, they aver that having several ladies of great quality and other prisoners, they were proffered their liberty to go to the president's camp. But they refused saying that they were now prisoners to a person of quality, who was more tender of their honors than they doubted to find in the president's camp among his rude Panama soldiers, and so voluntarily continued with them till the surrender of the town and castles, and, with many thanks and good wishes, they repaired to their former houses. End quote. Does this suggest that the women of Portobello were being daily tortured and raped? No, it doesn't. Now again, we have to ask ourselves whether or not this account can be trusted. Of course, that is more difficult to ascertain. So we have accounts on both sides, painting the men who attacked Portobello as true monsters. And then we have accounts painting them as noble men who were, while enemies of the Spanish, the type of people that would treat their captives with tenderness. I think in the end, Captain Morgan was not the terrible sadist that Exquimelin made him out to be. Nor was he the patriotic English hero that later writers would make him out to be. He was becoming something different, something else entirely. Captain Morgan was a creature of the new world. He was far from his old allegiances and his old prejudices. He was transforming from a simple soldier, from a privateer, even from a buccaneer into something new. Perhaps Captain Morgan was truly the first great pirate of the Golden Age. Near the end of their 31 days in Portobello, the president of Panama was brought word of the attack at his home in Panama City, and he marshaled an army of about 800 men. This significantly outnumbered the pirates in Portobello. That army began to march the 70 miles through the mountainous jungles of central Panama. Some native people living there who were ever enemies of the Spanish, brought Morgan news of the incoming force and offered to guide he and his men to a point in the road where all 800 soldiers would be vulnerable to ambush. Morgan, of course, thought this sounded like a splendid idea and marched to their destination, and in an afternoon, nearly the entire Spanish force was decimated. Thus began a flurry of correspondence between the president of Panama and Captain Morgan, the buccaneers had taken their fill of all the riches in Portobello, though not a treasure galleon, sadly, and they wanted a little bit more, so they turned to an old favorite and they decided to ransom the town and her people. They asked for 350,000 pieces of eight. The president said that he could agree to these terms if Captain Morgan was willing to accept a bill of exchange. All Captain Morgan would have to do to claim his treasure is to march boldly into a lending house in either Havana or Cartagena or back in old Spain. Captain Morgan declined that offer. The negotiations went back and forth for a while, until finally they settled upon 100,000 pieces of eight raised not from the government of Spain or Panama, but from the people living there. They levied a tax to get the pirates to leave. When everything had been arranged, the president had... One last question for Captain Morgan. He found it difficult to believe that Morgan could have taken the city and her great defenses with no cannon and no pieces of ordnance. He wished to know by what means Captain Morgan had taken the city. Morgan answered him. He sent him merely one of his muskets. Now this was a fine French firearm to be sure, and certainly better than anything the Spanish had in their possession, but it was just a gun. The message in the end was clear. We took Portobello because we had a will to do so. Captain Morgan attached a note, informing the president of Panama that he would return in a year to reclaim his musket. 
The president warned Morgan not to call on him in the manner he had visited Portobello, for in that case he might not get such a good reception. Next week we're going to take a brief break from the story of Captain Morgan, and we're going to look at events happening back in Europe and other parts of the Caribbean and involving other pirates such as Francois Lolonais. I'd like to thank all of you for listening, and I'd like to thank everybody that has supported the show. Many of you were kind enough to make donations through our website's PayPal button, and I really appreciate that. I'd also like to thank our new Patreon supporters. That is Austin, Garrett, Daniel, Richard, Jeffrey, and David. Thank you guys so much. You really help keep the podcast afloat. And keep an eye on our Twitter feed, where we're going to post images of some of that stuff that's going to be sent out your way. I'd also like to thank everybody who has been kind enough to leave a rating or review of us at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to the show. That really helps get the podcast noticed. And I'd like to ask a favor of everybody out there. I'd like to know what you guys think about our partnership with Audible, how you feel about it, and if you have any ideas for excellent suggestions that I could let people know about, I'd like to hear about those too. This week I would like to suggest a book called Pirate Latitudes by Michael Crichton. Now, a number of you, if you're fond of pirates, have probably already read this book. I would be surprised if not everybody hadn't. However, I had actually yet to read this until very recently. It was my most recent download from Audible, and I listened to it, and I found it to be a lot of fun. It was a book that actually was published after Michael Crichton passed away. It was his last work, and you can tell that it was something of a passion project for him. He was having a lot of fun writing this book. It fits in perfectly with what we've been talking about recently. It starts off with a jaunt through Port Royal, starting at the Governor's Mansion and then moving down tier by tier through Jamaica until we get to a dashing rogue of a privateer. A man who, well, I don't want to give anything away, but it has everything. That's why I say that you can tell Michael Crichton was having a good time writing it, because he doesn't leave anything out. Swashbuckling, dastardly Spaniards, witchcraft, and even some mythological beasts. I definitely recommend that book to anybody who hasn't read it, and if you would like to, please go to audibletrial.com forward slash pirate history podcast. I'd also like to let everybody know that we've got a bibliography page up at the website. It's a list of all of the sources used so far in the show, as well as all of the sources that I intend to use later on. There's a lot of really fun pirate reading on there. Everything from the Elizabethan age through what we're talking about now on into the golden age of piracy, as well as a little bit of fun pirate fiction in there. If you're looking for any of the sources we use, that's definitely a place you can check it out. And from there, you can go get it at Audible or a Books if you're looking for a hard copy edition. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you enjoy the song, I urge you to go ahead and check them out over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not go on over to our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, where we've got show notes, pictures, maps, basically supplemental information for the episodes. Or you can check us out on Twitter at Black Flagcast, Facebook, SoundCloud, or YouTube. Most importantly, once again, everybody, thank you for listening. Tonight